Hello, it's Monday 19th of October. I'm Mike Duran on today's Guardian Daily. A British mining firm stands accused of abuse and torture after clashes with police and protesters in northern Peru. 28 of them were hooded, had their hands tied behind their back, were beaten, uh, were verbally abused and threatened. Women were sexually abused. Get set for another hit to your pocket as the government looks to levy a new carbon tax, this time to subsidise the nuclear industry. The industry is plagued by cost overruns and, and delays, and I think that the government has really backed itself into a corner, really. And are we witnessing the beginning of the end of Hollywood? You look through the papers every week, there's just an extraordinary number of films coming out every Friday, most of which you have no desire to see. First, a news update and paper review with Bill Overton. The Communication Workers' Union are holding last-minute talks with Royal Mail today to try and stop the nationwide strikes planned for Thursday and Friday. The union's angry about plans to hire 30,000 temporary staff to help deal with any backlog. TNT, Britain's largest private mail operator, is pushing for permission to get their own orange-clad postman on the streets. It's completed trial runs in Liverpool, Manchester and Glasgow and believes it could step in if the strike goes ahead. In a speech on climate change today, Gordon Brown will warn the world is on the brink of a catastrophic future of killer heat waves, floods and droughts unless negotiations can improve before vital talks in Copenhagen in December. He says with only 50 days to save the world, there is no plan B and that agreement cannot be deferred beyond the UN-sponsored Copenhagen conference. The BBC could face legal action over BNP leader Nick Griffin's appearance on Question Time, Welsh Secretary Peter Hayne has warned. The show this Thursday is due to feature Mr Griffin, Justice Secretary Jack Straw and Tory and Lib Dem panellists. But Peter Haynes written to BBC Director General Mark Thompson arguing the BNP is an unlawful body following a court ruling on its membership policy. A British mining corporation is facing a multi-million pound claim for damages after protesters were detained and allegedly tortured at an open-cast copper plant the firm seeking to develop in the mountains of northern Peru. Protesters claim noxious substances were sprayed in their faces by armed police before they were hooded, beaten with sticks and whipped. The protesters say the police were being directed by the mine's managers, although its owner, Monterico Metals, disputes this. And in sport, Jensen Button became Formula One world champion yesterday. Button produced outstanding overtaking moves to come from 14th to an eventual 5th place in the Brazilian Grand Prix and score enough points to take the title. Now for a quick look at today's papers. We're leading with a photograph of the mining protesters in Peru, hooded with their hands behind their backs under the headline What Happens If You Protest a British Mining Company in Peru? Adding the case to be heard at the High Court in London today highlights growing tensions between powerful mining interests in Peru and alliances of poor subsistence farmers and environmentalists. The Independent has an interview with one of the Iraqi asylum seekers who was sent to Baghdad from the UK last week. 30 of the deportees were refused entry and had to come back to Britain. Abu Yusuf told the paper he believes he'll be killed in Iraq by the men who murdered his brother. The Mail says there's new hope for IVF mothers with news that British scientists have developed a test that trebles the chance of a baby and removes the risk of Down syndrome. The trials showed it doubles the rate of conception even for women in their late 30s. And photos of a victorious Jensen Button splashed across most papers. Button goes into overdrive to win the championship. That's uh, the Times. The Sun fills its front page with the Formula One driver and the headline, Great Button. Uh, Keep up to date with all those stories and breaking news throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. First today, a harrowing tale of detention and alleged torture 
of impoverished farm workers in northern Peru. A British mining company is facing a multi-million dollar claim for damages, resulting from a clash at an open plant mine between protesters and police in August of 2005. One man, 41-year-old Melanio Garcia, was left to bleed to death. A further three demonstrators were shot and wounded by police, and two women claimed to have been sexually assaulted and threatened with rape. Solicitor Richard Meeran of Lee Day, the London law firm bringing the High Court case, says the evidence is incontrovertible. My clients were physically beaten. 28 of them were hooded, had their hands tied behind their back, were beaten, uh, were verbally abused and threatened. Women were sexually abused. Uh, The uh, captors appeared to have taken some pride in holding up uh, women's underwear as some kind of trophy. Uh, And they were scared. The protest is about the impact on the local environment should the development of the mine go ahead. At getting on for 20,000 acres, local farmers and environmentalists say rivers will be polluted and the fragile ecosystems of the region severely damaged. Protesters say they're fighting to save their farmlands. But these two witnesses, detained in the demonstration at Rio Blanco, describe how they were treated. In 2005, we decided to march. More than 15,000 farmers from Ayabaca, Wancambamba, San Ignacio, Buaga. We went to the mine site. That's where, at 5 a.m., when we were having breakfast, preparing tea and soup, others still sleeping. That's when the attack came. They shot at us, shot us with tear gas bombs. That's where many were injured. One man lost his eye. Another had his leg shot. Another was shot in his lungs. Another in his temple. Three days there without food. They beat us every day. In truth, it's hard to remember all the things they did to us. They put me with the girl. She was from Ayabaca. We were put apart in a cell. They tied us back to back and said, You're the ones who'll pay for this, bitches. You'll pleasure us, and they twisted our breasts. They wanted us to take our trousers off. I don't know what they wanted to do with us. They wanted to rape us, I guess. And they kept twisting our breasts. And we kept close together, but... The owners of the mine, Monterico, say they had no control over the police, but eyewitnesses believe the mine's manager was directing the police operation. Solicitor Richard Miran again. Monterico Metals owns the Peruvian mine. Uh, That mine is its principal asset. It managed that mine. It was in charge of risk management. What we have been told by witnesses is that the manager of the mine who was there during the time in question, was directing the operations and positively encouraged the police, mine security and mine employees to treat the protesters harshly. And further, uh, given that this torture occurred over a period of three days, there appears to have been a total failure on the part of the company 
to do anything to stop the violations. In response, a spokesman for Monterico says, and I quote, Monterico vigorously denies that any of its officers or employees were in any way involved with the alleged abuses at the Rio Blanco mine in 2005, and that it considers allegations to the contrary made by the claimants to be wholly without merit. And you can read Ian Cobain's full report on this story and see some of those pictures from the clashes at guardian.co.uk slash world. Elsewhere on the Guardian website this week, we begin a retrospective on a global landmark which blighted the lives of Berliners for more than a quarter of a century. It's 48 years since the Berlin Wall went up in 1961, but now we're approaching the 20th anniversary of its fall, and we have exclusive videos each day this week to mark the occasion. Nobody could believe this was real. It was a miracle. We sent parcels to my husband's grandmother and you knew that there was a lack even of needles for sewing. There was still some vague thought, well, maybe something could be done with the kind of socialist term of communism. This knowledge that there's always somebody near you or in your group of acquaintances or among your friends who will be spying on you or who will be writing reports. They were at the door shouting, the wall is open. We walked through the wall. The end of the Berlin Wall is the symbol of the end of a divided Europe and the end of the Cold War. And for your next trip to Berlin, you can download an audio guide to historic and interesting points along the wall. Find them at guardian.co.uk slash world. Next, yet another story I'm afraid about the rising cost of fuel bills. This is a new carbon tax designed to subsidise the nuclear industry. And if you feel the need to shoot the messenger, then here's The Guardian's Tim Webb with the details. Well, we already pay a carbon tax uh, at the moment. Uh, carbon, uh, the, the carbon market um, supports all forms of low carbon generation, whether it's renewables or clean coal, or uh, which isn't really developed yet, and of course nuclear. But the point about these conversations that the Office of Nuclear Development have been having, and the promises that the government uh, appears to be making, is that renewables already get plenty of subsidies and clean coal isn't uh, ready to be rolled out on a large scale yet it's some it's a decade a decade at least away from being rolled out and so these these government assurances we can safely say that they they they're primarily uh, aimed at the nuclear industry to make sure that these as I say these reactors get built which really does beg the question whether the nuclear industry is, contrary to, to the government's uh, and ministers' previous uh, promises, will actually uh, once again uh, be the beneficiary of, of public subsidies. And how much are we talking, the bottom line here, what sort of percentage are we going to have to add on to our bills in the middle as we are already clamped in the teeth of a serious recession? Sure. Well, before people start panicking, um, this carbon tax wouldn't come in uh, until about 2015 onwards, and um, it may ratchet up, start uh, lower level in 2015, and then uh, increase, because these new nuclear reactors that the government is so anxious to, to get built, they won't be ready the, uh, until 2017 at the very earliest. So there's no need to panic quite yet, but... The energy consultancy EIC estimates that on, on the basis of current current energy electricity bill of £500 a year that a, a small household, you know, one or two bedroom flat typically might pay, on that, out of that £500, the carbon costs that consumers have to pay based on the, the existing carbon price is approximately £21. They estimate that 
if the government's promise was implemented tomorrow to introduce this additional carbon levy, that £21 that we currently pay to meet the, the carbon cost of, of electricity would actually rise to £65. So that would be an additional £44 on our honoured £500 electricity bill. So that's almost 10%. So the, the government really should never have promised not to subsidise nuclear uh, power. I think they, they made this promise because um, there's, there's still quite a lot of public opposition or certainly scepticism towards the nuclear industry, particularly on the issue of cost. In the past, nuclear reactors have cost far more than they're supposed to. There's the, 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 uh, the industry is plagued by uh, um, cost overruns and, and delays. And I think that the government really has really backed itself into a corner, really, by by promising something that it couldn't deliver. Then again, no other uh, form of uh, uh, power is uh, free of subsidy anyway. Renewables get subsidies. Uh, clean coal will get subsidies. So the nuclear industry argues, you could um, say to, with some justification that um, privately, of course, that um, they're no different to anyone else. Tim Webb. Next to a story which could divide opinion. I'm sure you'll let us know. If I was to say the number of films being produced by Hollywood is set to plummet by more than a third, you might be saddened, or perhaps gladdened. Either way, that's the industry analysis as the major studios struggle against a dearth of funding as consumers adjust the way they consume. The number of movies like the current US box office number one couple's retreat, which reportedly cost more than $60 million to make, would likely decline. This is what we might have to do without. Jason and I are seriously considering getting a divorce. And that is why we are going to go here. It's Disneyland for adults. You guys are going to have a blast. Actually, we have found a great group right here. This looks like a screensaver. They got fish that you can see through the floor. Welcome to Eden, your itinerary. A couple of skill building at 6 a.m. I think there's a misunderstanding here. We signed up for the fun stuff. You either partake of the entire package or have none of it. Vince Vaughan and cast from Couples Retreat. Our New York correspondent is Ed Pilkington. He says times are turbulent in Tinseltown. Well, in the last few uh, just weeks, really, several of the top heads of the of many big studios in Hollywood have have been cut off. They've uh, had a the largest change around in the leadership of some of the studios in 25 years, and that's because the whole industry is is going into a sort of spasm. It's a combination of the recession, like so many digital businesses, from newspapers to TV to to books. The the industry is in crisis because of the combination of the recession which has led to a drying up of finance and a more long-term sort of existential problem, which is digitalization and the sort of splintering of the ways in which people uh, are receiving and watching films. And put the two together and you've got this sort of historic double whammy, which is causing extraordinary problems for the big studios. And there's even talk now, I mean, there's six major studios in Hollywood that they talk now of at least one and maybe up to three of them absolutely just collapsing and disappearing, um, of which MGM is probably the the front row, is the most threatened at the moment. And presumably anti-piracy campaigners will be saying, we told you so. Yes, although the interesting thing is that piracy is just one small part of this uh, this overall problem. It's certainly the case that piracy is hitting DVD sales, on which the industry has come increasingly to depend. You know, they uh, the films now require a huge amount of money coming in through secondary DVD sales on top of 
income at the cinemas, which is now no longer enough to support the huge budgets that uh, many of the top films uh, require to make. But that's just one part, as I say. I mean, the, the, the single largest problem is that Wall Street, the banks, which have largely bankrolled uh, Hollywood movies, have withdrawn an enormous amount of money. Uh, uh, last year, Hollywood was receiving about $18 billion uh, from Wall Street. This year, it's down, uh, down to six. So 12 of those $18 billion have been sucked out of the business, which is an enormous amount of money. And it's leaving a lot of the big studios scrambling to try and make up the difference. It is, as you say, a huge amount of money. But Hollywood is known for its profligacy, isn't it? Maybe it should tighten its belt like the rest of us. Yeah, and, and uh, people are, are saying that. I mean, last year, about 600 films were made, which is probably close to a historic high. And it's an extraordinary number of films. And if you, you know, just from one's own knowledge, you look through the papers every week, there's just an extraordinary number of films coming out every Friday, most of which you have no desire to see. So there's certainly been a sense of glut in, in the business. And to some extent, the stripping out of some of these sort of pretty shoddy, uh, you know, not very worth seeing films is, is no bad thing. and actually might lead to a sense of better quality. But there's an underlying real anxiety, which I think film buffs are going to get very agitated about before long. And that is that as films shrink, as fewer are made, and it may go down to less than 400, so at least a third uh, of the films being made now won't be made in future. Um, but as that happens, more and more money will go towards fewer and fewer big films. Uh, and less and less will go to innovative, independent, groundbreaking, really creative films uh, that film buffs like going to see. So we can expect the Spider-Man 12s and the Superman 15s, that kind of thing? You can, and for many people, uh, that's going to be a pretty miserable prospect. And you're starting to hear some big names starting to complain about it. Francis Ford Coppola, the director of the Godfather trilogy and Apocalypse Now, has just said, he made comments um, in a recent film festival, that the industry is falling apart, I quote. And he says it's just going to, all the money's now going to go to these big franchises. And his latest film, Tetro, he, you know, it's a huge name in filmmaking, he funded with the, the profits from his, his vineyard in California. And that's a sort of sign of what's going on, I think. Ed Pilkington. Still to come, an insight into the mind of best-selling author Robert Harris. And I also thought it would be interesting to try and experience what Roman politics was really like. Um, what was the Senate like? How many people were in it? Where did they all sit? How, how did, were debates conducted? How were elections fought and so on? Before that, apologies as our next story is another tale of wasted public money. It's claimed millions of pounds you pay on some of the highest rail fares in Europe aren't being spent on investment but are being wasted in compensation payouts to employees forced out by discrimination and bullying. The Equality and Human Rights Commission is investigating allegations that Network Rail has spent up to £6 million paying off staff who were subjected to grossly sexist behaviour by one particular Network Rail executive. The Guardian's Peter Walker has more. It's investigating claims that have been made by a trade union which is involved with lots of uh, network rail white-collar staff and also made by a Labour MP in the Commons that there is a widespread, what this MP called, culture of bullying and fear within management at network rail. And the particular concern that's been raised in the Commons um, is that network rail has spent a lot of money on confidential compensation payouts to staff who'd been uh, sacked. And whilst Network Rail is, one, is run as a private company, it's publicly uh, funded, 
Um, so this MP is claiming that over two years, 95 people left Network Rail, some at very senior positions. And he's saying that if you extrapolate a possible maximum of £64,000 per person, that could be £6 million of public funds, which has been uh, spent on, uh, on uh, paying people off. For what reasons have people left? Because of the confidentiality agreements, we don't know. And because part of the deal is that they receive, in many cases, a big cheque on the condition that they don't talk to anyone. So we don't really know. However, we've seen documents which um, have been seen by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission. And they talk about um, the actions in particular of one very senior manager of Network Rail, who's alleged to have used very sexist language to have done things like disputed by why uh, female staff should be able to take time off when they had a uh, child, asked why maternity leave lasts as long as 12 months, um, said some very unpleasant uh, sexual comments to some member of uh, uh, staff. And the union allegation is that quite a number, well certainly some of these senior members of staff, have effectively been pushed out because they've not wanted to work with this uh, person. But the most senior people at Network Rail don't want to tackle the way that he uh, acts. Um, and I should stress straight away now that Network Rail say they've um, in- investigated this matter uh, fully and there's no further action that needs to be uh, taken. As obnoxious and offensive as some of these comments are, £64,000 or thereabouts as a compensation award seems like a substantial amount, seems like a lot. Well, there's some people who are getting um, apparently an awful lot uh, more than this. There's one woman who worked very closely, supposedly, with this man who was in a very senior position, who received, so we've been told, uh, a payout of uh, half a million pounds. And that is the worry, really, that if these very, very large cheques are being written out, and it's all taxpayers' cash, it seems that Network Rail, um, you know, and they say that this isn't the the case, but if the claims read out in the House of Commons are true, they seem to be more willing to try and spend their way out of this problem rather than actually tackle it. Have they thought of getting rid of the offenders? Well, as I as I said, they say that they've um, investigated the matter very uh, closely and they've investigated the conduct of this one uh, executive and they're saying that there's no further action needs to be taken. Some of the papers that we've seen are quite interesting because they some internal disciplinary documents at Network Rail have drawn up essentially say that this one um, executive acknowledges that sometimes his behaviour or rather his language can be sexist and in one case uh, racist too um, and he has offended some people and yet they've concluded still no further action needs to be uh, taken against him. The Guardian's Peter Walker. Finally, former political journalist and champion of New Labour Robert Harris is taking his readers back to ancient Rome in the second of what is to be a classical trilogy. Lustrum picks up where Imperium left off after the election of Cicero as Consul of Rome in 63 BC. Claire Armitstead, literary editor of The Guardian, went to meet the author and asked him how he set about finding a voice for the book. Uh, The narrator is uh, Cicero's amanuensis, a a real-life figure called Tiro, who um, was with Cicero for 30 years or so, um, and who... Uh, Cicero wrote letters to him and uh, described him as his support in all things, in his public life and his private life. And Tiro was really Cicero's fixer. And he long outlived his master, uh, dying about 30 years later at the age of nearly 100. And he wrote a multi-volume life of Cicero. And when I came to try to... um, imagine how I might write this trilogy of novels about ancient Rome, it's un- it occurred to me that I had my voice there, really, in Tiro, who was a sort of insider-outsider. and who, a slave. He was a slave, and um, uh, but he was highly educated, and in ancient Rome often the slaves were, you know, very powerful figures, and... Uh, 
uh, it also enabled me to play off this this figure uh, who is a slave but who's very clever uh, with this master and there's always a constant tension between them as to when exactly Cicero is going to set him free but of course Cicero uh, knows that Tiro knows where too many bodies are, be- are buried. Now there's a fascinating footnote to this which is that we actually still have secretarial markings that Tiro invented. Yes. I didn't know this. Well this is an extraordinary thing about it. Tiro uh, invented shorthand effectively. He was the first to have an organised system of 4,000 characters, which was still in use in the Roman Catholic Church in the 5th century. And things like the ampersand, uh, etc., NB, IE, uh, these have come down to us through this noto tironi, as it was called, and they, they link us with Cicero's era. And Tiro almost certainly is the scribe who took down verbatim Cato's speech uh, in the Senate, Uh, calling for the death penalty for the Catalan conspirators, which is actually, I reproduce in the book. I mean, he's the most wonderful voice, really. You couldn't make him up, as they say. Mm -hmm. So what what made you think that Cicero, you know, it's an old Roman orator, what made you think he was interesting enough to hold not only one novel, but a trilogy? Well, I started off, what happened was I wrote a novel, uh, Pompeii, And uh, when I came to finish Pompeii in 2003, Tom Holland's book Rubicon uh, was coming out. And I read Rubicon and I thought it was wonderful. And I was reluctant to leave the Roman period. And I'd always wanted to write a political, a big political novel, having been a political journalist. Uh, And I'd fought shy of inventing a prime minister and, you know, the, the, the reality was so bizarre, why would one try to <laughs> invent another? And uh, I thought, well, why don't I set my uh, political novel in the Roman Republic, which had so many features in common with our own society? And I also thought it would be interesting to try and experience what Roman politics was really like. Um, what was the Senate like? How many people were in it? Where did they all sit? How, how did, were debates conducted? How were elections fought and so on? And the moment I started to do reading, it became obvious to me that the, the character that would most bring this alive was Cicero, who was um, very similar to our sensibility, it seems to me. He, he disliked cruelty he disliked the games, for instance. He didn't like seeing animals tear one another apart. He always liked to defend rather than prosecute. Uh, he was a great holder of law and order and civilised values, kiwis romana sum, you know, uh, legal protocol. And he was also a great writer, and his career was long, and he wasn't militaristic. And it seemed to me Cicero hadn't had a fair shake, really, that... Caesar dominated so much. So for all those reasons, I I quickly saw that he would be the centre of the trilogy. And then it was simply a matter of thinking, how can I bring him alive? And then I hit on the figure of Tiro. Claire Armitstead talking to the best-selling author Robert Harris about his new novel Lustrum. That's it for Monday's Guardian Daily, upload Tuesdays from 07.30 tomorrow. Producing today, Phil Maynard and Harriet Grant. I'm Mike Duran. Thanks for listening. 